0: Today's reading will be from Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Brian. And man, it has been just great to see everybody serving up here and and get to worship with everybody here in the church. Um, I wanna do one quick housekeeping actual announcement. Uh, There is a gray Toyota Highlander with a roof rack, whose lights are currently on. Now, I want us to all be very silent and wait and watch while whoever owns that car awkwardly stands up. But no, we just want to let you guys know it, the lights are on. We want you—we <laughs> don't want you to have to stay here all day. Um, so, if that's your car, or if you think that could be your car, it's over parked over here on the west side of the parking lot. So. Um, Whenever you feel it's appropriate, you can get (laughs) up. If you want to wait five minutes, that's fine. I understand. Just at some point in time, you might want to change that. So, um, Anyways, uh, one of my favorite TV shows, it's it's not currently on anymore, but it's a show called Arrested Development. Does anybody anybody watch Arrested Development? I've sadly watched it about eight times, like every single episode, eight times. Um, It's sad that I have that much time on my hands. but if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's a show basically about a really dysfunctional family. And they're a very wealthy, dysfunctional family. The dad, however, actually has to go to jail uh, because of money fraud and stuff like that. And it's them kind of putting the pieces back together. And what I love about this show is they're able to carry on these kind of running jokes throughout each season. And probably my favorite joke that they're doing is something called the chicken impression. It starts in the first season... Where one of them does a chicken impression, and then another one does another chicken impression, and finally it culminates in the final season, sadly, only three seasons of this show, uh, where a bunch of them are doing chicken impressions. And I want to show you this, and I promise I have a point in how it relates to Ephesians. Because you're a chicken, you're a chicken. Cuckoo ka-cha! Cuckoo ka-cha! Women cuckoo cha That's what I was just telling Coo-coo-ca-cha. you. Coo-coo-ca-cha. I haven't found the right girl when I do I will ask her out Has anyone in this family ever yeah. seen a chicken at the Oh come on <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh so two Ephesians now um, no. So there's a line, and it was kind of hard to hear over the chicken impressions, but there's a line in there where uh, Jason Bateman, who plays Michael Bluth in there, uh, says, has anybody in this family ever seen a chicken? Because <laughs> none of them are actually impersonating what an actual chicken looks like. You know, it, it's funny, he, he asked that, and, it, and as we hear about the gospel, this is how it relates, as we hear about the gospel... We hear this word thrown out there, and it gets to a point where this word means so many things, and is so personalized to people. Sometimes I wonder if any of us have ever actually seen or understand or know what the gospel really looks like. Have any of us really seen the chicken? Have any of us really seen and know what we're talking about? It becomes so many different things that I think it's important that we actually take a step back and look and say, what is it that we're actually talking about when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, in the passage that we're looking at right now, Paul shows us all the chicken, to put it strangely. In this passage, he puts forth, I, I think, the primary and, and most fundamental way of understanding what makes the good news of Jesus Christ good news. And, and to kind of summarize, this is what we're looking at. This is what makes it such good news. It's that through the life, the death The resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Christ, God has accomplished victory over every evil power for all time. I'm going to say that again. Through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ, God has accomplished victory over every evil power for all time. This is what we're going to be looking at today. This is, we're looking at ultimately the cosmic victory of God over every evil power, over all rule and authority, and both here in, in this world and in the heavenly places. That that is the good news. That is, that is the heart and core. Without that, none of this other stuff is possible. None of the other implications of the gospel works if God didn't first accomplish victory. But before we can look at that, I think we need to address a problem that's in my heart, that's in uh, kind of uh, this culture, that makes it really hard for us to read these verses and understand why this is such a big deal. And The problem is that most of us are what I would call functional materialists. And I'm not saying materialists in the sense that we like a bunch of stuff. That's another way of understanding materialism. But I'm talking about more this idea... That what we see is what's there. Is that we don't really see beyond the material world. And even if we will say, no, we really believe in God and we we believe this stuff. And when we actually look at how we live, how we understand uh, and process uh, problems and things like that, we are functionally materialists. We live This life as though there's nothing more than what we see. Timothy Gombus writes this. He says, We desperately need a heavenly vision of reality so that we will not be hoodwinked into thinking that life is all about maintaining social status and accumulating stuff. Our default behavior is to interpret the world and our lives according to our own earthly vision of reality taking into account only that which we can see and account for in natural terms. Simply by living in this world and going through our day-to-day patterns of life, the conviction is subtly reinforced to us that this is all there is. We come to think and live as if everything that happens in our lives is only earthly causes, as if the real entities running the world and ordering our lives are national powers, corporate entities, or the companies for which we work. It is supremely difficult, as many of us have come to see, or at least we can say that it is not natural to envision our lives from the conviction that Christ is cosmic ruler of all things. This is his way of putting the same thing. We are functionally materialists. We believe that what we see is what there is. And this is something that is not, that is not necessarily new. This, this goes back... Hundreds of years with the shift, uh, and not to bore you with anything, but when Descartes kind of shifted the way we think and process information, when that phrase, I think, therefore, I am, shifted the way we understand how knowledge and truth is revealed to us, we became more and more materialists over time. The idea of supernatural revelation as being even a consideration as part of truth. The idea that there's anything beyond What we see here has become more and more just a a ludicrous thought within this culture. To where we get to the point where we hear this idea that God is the cosmic victor over all things, over all rule and authority in the heavenly places. And we don't even have the imagination. We don't even have the framework, the paradigm to understand why that matters. Because we have been so trained over time, over hundreds of years, to understand the world through only the lens of what we can see. And that's what makes this so hard, because this is the crux of the gospel. That God is victorious over all things. But because we we, we are so wrapped up in this, and myself included, we have a hard time really understanding why this is such a big deal. And we, we see this a, a, as evidence in the way we respond to different situations. Our first answer to poverty is programs, education, systemic legislation, or despair. Our first solution for happiness is, once again, education, employment, leisure, family. First response for illness, both mental and physical, is medication. We turn to government, we turn to education, we turn to worldview, we turn to nonprofits, self-improvement, all of these things before we turn to God when we're faced with situations. And that doesn't mean that the material world doesn't matter. And I'll remind us of this as we talk about this more. Doesn't mean that this stuff shouldn't play out in the material world. But what it shows is that we don't see beyond it. What it ultimately shows is that we don't see the world for how it truly is. Cuz what this has ultimately done, what this is what material what functional materialism has done to our understanding of the gospel, it is it has caused it to become a privatized commodity. We all know what a commodity is. A commodity is something we can purchase or trade for or something like that that kind of seeks to, to build our own kind of asset base. That's what a commodity is. That we, we have, because we do not have a cosmic vision of the world and cosmic vision of the gospel it's so easy for us to slip into this idea that the gospel is just one more thing, one more material, one more commodity, one more asset for us to kind of put kind of in our portfolio to help us towards our ultimate goals of self-improvement. It is a privatized salvation remedy. And the way the Bible envisions the gospel couldn't be further from that. The problem is we don't see the world for how it really is. And what's interesting is I think that that's not necessarily fully new to us. Because if we see even before in verse 20 through 23, which is what we're going to be specifically looking at today, Paul has this prayer, and in it, he is praying that the Ephesian church will see the world this way. That God will give them the vision to see and understand the world the way God actually made it. The way God actually interacts let me read this so that we can see the prayer leading up to this point. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, and this is where he starts to say it, may give you a spirit of wisdom. So he wants you to have the wisdom to actually see what's going on and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants a revelation. The knowledge of how he sees things, how he's, he's done things in this world. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that their eyes would actually be opened to the way the world really is. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He was praying all of this stuff so that we would actually get the full implications of what Jesus has done. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We would understand the riches and depth and beauty of what God has given us through Christ. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So he prays this because he knows that without this, without God opening up our eyes to see the world as as it truly is, that we won't understand the depth of the hope that we have. We want to understand the depth of the glorious inheritance that he's brought us into, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And after he does that, he, he, kind of just, he, he kind of ends this section by just praising God for what he's done, by being overwhelmed by this cosmic victory. And that's what we see starting in verse 20. So the same might that has accomplished all of these things ultimately continues. That he worked in Christ So my hope this morning is is that the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian church would be true for us as well, that our hearts and our eyes would be enlightened to the full truth of what God is revealing in this, that our vision of the world would begin to shift, that we would break free from the bondage of functional materialism and begin to see the world for how it really is so that we can see the true nature of the hope that God has given us. And that's what we're going to be looking at the rest of the day. That, 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 what is the good news of the victory of God? What is it that God has accomplished, that is such a big deal, that is such a big deal to Paul, that is such a big deal through Jesus, all of this stuff. Why is this such a big deal? The first we see in Ephesians 1:20, and that's that Jesus has been raised and is now exalted. This is where the gospel starts for Paul, that Jesus has been raised is now exalted, and we see this in 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Luke Simmons, who's the pastor at Redemption Gateway, made this point about this passage, that Jesus not only lives forever, but that he reigns forever. This is the important distinction that Paul is making. It wasn't just that God raised him from the dead, kind of defeating death in that moment, but now... He is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has been exalted and given the same authority as the Father and ruling over this kingdom that he has formed, that he has shaped, that he has begun through Christ. Uh, If you've heard of the term Christus Victor, if you've studied church history or anything like that, this is what that's referring to, this idea that, that God has become victorious over all things. This idea of being seated at the right hand is that image, and I know sometimes it's hard for us to relate to this imagery because we don't have a bunch of kings and we don't live in that world, but kings didn't bring people up to their right hand unless they were granting them the same exact authority that they had. Nobody sat at the right hand of the king unless they were also king as well. So Jesus is different. It's not an angel. He's not just some great man. He's not just some incredible prophet or something like that. Jesus is being brought up and said, no, this is God. He is the same authority, and he is reigning on high. He is over and above all things. That's the first aspect of this good news, that Jesus not only has been raised but has been exalted and now has authority over all things. Second thing we see is that not only has he been raised and is exalted, but he is now victorious over all evil for all time. Every ruler, every authority, every power, and every name. He is now victorious over all evil for all time. In Psalm 110, verse 1, and this is kind of harkening back, this is a, a, a popular a, Uh, messianic psalm it says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool in ephesians 20 and 21 there is kind of this idea of that 21 it says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all thing under his feet this is the image that they have. And, and there's actually, uh, this is not just unique to the Bible, but this is the way they would talk about it um, in Egyptian poetry and, and other ancient Near Eastern cultures. When a, when a king conquered over other kings or o- over other nations, the idea is that he would make them basically his footstool. He would turn them into the thing that he rested his dirty, gross feet on at the end of the day. There's not, there's not some partnership or anything like that, that there's no power that these things now have, that he is ruling over all of this. And we know, even though it's not necessarily talked about specifically in this context, but from the context of the rest of Ephesians, this isn't just general rule and authority or anything like that. He's specifically talking about the evil rule and authority that we see play out in the world. He's not just talking about generally rules, rulers, and powers or anything like that. But he's talking specifically that there are evil powers, evil authorities, evil rulers, kind of overseeing what's going on in the earth. And that God is now victorious through Christ over those things. And this is where our functional materialism really makes this challenging. This is why we struggle with understanding this as good news. And it's because we don't really recognize the true powers behind the earthly powers of this world. We don't recognize the true powers of evil and darkness and and all of that stuff that's actually controlling and influencing and shaping what we see and experience in this world. The powers of evil pervert everything. They pervert even our good intentions. Timothy Gombus in his book, Later goes on, and this is a commentary that he writes on Ephesians. Later goes on to describe this uh, group of uh, uh, environmental protesters who are protesting some corporation as to kind of some of the environmental problems that they've been causing worldwide. And they go sit on this port, the uh, front lawn of this guy, the CEO. It turns out the CEO and his wife actually come out, bring them water, sit down, talk with them, have a conversation. And they realize that this CEO and his family are actually very, um, you know, earthly-minded in the sense of they care about the globe, they care about their nice people. And it's this kind of shattering moment for these protesters thinking, okay, well, I thought evil was a little more kind of cut and dry than that. These are good people that somehow there's still something evil causing this devastation. That, And the point is that he's using... that that evil, that the rulers and authorities of this world, the true rulers and authorities of this world will use even our best intentions, even the things that we set out for good for the sake of evil. And it's because there is something behind what we're doing. We experience the symptoms of this all the time. On a broad level, some of the things that we're experiencing right now is something like gun violence. We it talked about it all the time, gun violence, Uh, The broken immigration system, political gridlock and corruption, this idea of toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, all of these things are systemic issues and problems and evils that we, we see on its surface. And every once in a while, we actually see people, I think even in the public sphere, recognize that maybe there's something deeper than just the symptoms of this. Maybe there's a deeper brokenness. I read uh, an article in the New York Times by a guy named, he's actually a comedian named Michael Ian Black. And the, the title of the article is, The Boys Are Not All Right. And he writes this, he said, Too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating, outdated model of masculinity, where manhood is measured in strength, where there is no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated, where manliness is about having power over others. They are trapped and they don't even have the language to talk about how they feel about being trapped. Because the language that exists to discuss the full range of human emotion is still viewed as sensitive and feminine. Men feel isolated, confused, and conflicted about their natures. Many feel that the very qualities that used to define them, their strength, aggression, and competitiveness, are no longer wanted or needed. Many others never felt strong or aggressive or competitive to begin with. We don't know how to be, and we're terrified. They don't know how to be, and they're terrified. They feel trapped in this And he's writing this in response to the issues of gun violence and the Me Too movement and and all of this stuff, saying there's something deeper. There's there's a trap that people are in. He doesn't go as far to name what the true power and and, and rule that's, that's informing this is. But we recognize that there's something deeper. We see this at a personal level too, not just on a broad level. We see this with addiction, with mental illness and depression, with the marital challenges, parenting challenges, the fact that most of us hate our jobs, most of us, the fact that most of us just want more things, all of, those, all of that is indicative of something deeper. And the problem that we have is not that we, 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 sh- we should talk about these things. We should have a conversation about what we can do about this. But we oftentimes fail to recognize the deeper rulers and authorities that are driving these things. Like, on the one hand, like, I hate the fact that now with uh, all my kids, on top of all the other things that I have to worry about, all the other things that I have to be concerned about, I have to be concerned about gun violence at schools. Like, I hate that. As a parent, it it drives me crazy. And yes, we should have conversations about it. But I also know because when we see the world for how it really is, when we see the world for how God actually created it, that we could get rid of all guns, We could screen for all mental illness. We could do all of those things, and there would still be evil in this world that we have to be worried about. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have practical conversations about it, but it means that we need to recognize that these things are not the true problems. That there is something deeper going on here, that there is a deeper evil, a deeper rule and authority that is driving the things we experience. And that's why there, there's, this, there's this level of sadness when I see these things play out because I know that even if we fix one thing because of the rule and authority that evil has in so many spheres of this world, that by fixing one thing, it's just going to cause another problem because those things are not truly the problems. My son Hayes, uh, he, he has this incredible ability when watching something or hearing something, to pick out the worst possible part of it to repeat and repeat it over and over and over again. Like, it is uncanny. We're like, he will pick out the the, the smallest detail. I'm like, where did you learn that? He's like, you showed me it. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Um, well, we, we showed him about two years ago. As part of nostalgia and because we thought it'd be funny, we showed them the movie Home Alone, which was funny. And first off, if we did any of those things to actual people, it would be terrible. Like, and I and I like put this disclaimer: I'm like, kids, don't hit kids with don't hit other kids with paint cans. It's not okay. Don't shoot nail guns at people. Like, like none of this stuff would end well for that person. But you know, there's that line in there uh, about the filthy animals. And, of course, Hayes latches onto that. And, literally, that's what he calls everybody for the next, like, month or two months. <laughs> and, like, inwardly, it's kind of funny. We're like, okay, he's just quoting Home Alone. But then, like, he's calling other kids that on the playground. And he's saying that at church. And he's calling adults that. And I'm like, okay, okay. We need to have a conversation about this. And it was so funny. Because what he ultimately says kind of after we had to talk with him once again about not calling people filthy animals. He says, Daddy, watching Home Alone makes it hard for me to respect Jesus. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So uh, now the real question is, did we stop watching Home Alone? (laughs) But what's interesting about that, and this is one thing I love about kids, is that they actually have the imagination, I think, to see the world for the way God intended it. Even without fully understanding it, Hayes knew that there's something about what was going on in that movie that made it hard for him to honor God. He actually made that connection. So there's something deeper going on there. There's something, there's something that is overwhelming him. Now, I think he also needs to bear some of the responsibility. But there's something, there's something in there that's connecting Watching Home Alone makes it hard for me to respect Jesus. What's really fascinating to me, and this is why this is such good news, is that all of these things that we're experiencing, whether it's on a broad level with violence, with broken laws and policies, with corruption, with greed and oppression, all of these things, whether it's on a broad level or whether it's on a very personal level, whether it's Depression or or broken relationships, whether it's uh, health and sickness, whether it's, you know, you name it, all of these things that we experience it, all of these things are driven by the rule and authority and power and dominion of things that Christ has now conquered. All of these things that we see in the world are being driven by things that Christ has now conquered. That Christ has now become victorious over. That evil that drives violence. That evil that drives hatred and racism. That evil that drives mental sickness and, and physical sickness. That evil that drives all of these things are now footstools under the feet of Christ. They have no true power and authority in this world anymore because of what Jesus has done. That is why this is such good news. And as we begin to see the world for how it truly is, we begin to see the greatness of the cosmic victory of God. All of these things are things that Christ has now conquered. And then we look at kind of the final part of this, the third aspect of why this is such good news. Not only has Christ's been raised from the dead and exalted. Not only is he now victorious over all evil for all time, but he has brought the church into his victory. He has now brought us, those who have been redeemed by him, brought into life through his grace, through his calling. Those us who are now gathered as a community of God have been brought into this victory. Now, all of these things that Christ has accomplished, God is accomplishing through us and in us, in this world right now. It says this as it closes. Not only did he put all things under his feet, he gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all and all. And later, not to give anything away, but I think it's important that we see the parallelism of what Paul does ultimately in Ephesians 2. So we just read that he has been raised from the dead and he has been seated at the right hand and been granted all authority over this. And listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And sealed us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He uses the same language to describe what's happened in Christ to the church. That just as Jesus was raised, we have been raised with Christ, just as Jesus has been seated at the right hand, that now through our faith in him, through him being now our head, We have been raised to that same position. That we have now been given authority over all dominions, over all rulers, and all 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 evil powers in this world. That we have been brought into this victory. And this is why the privatized gospel is so dangerous. This is why that it is so unfortunate. That when we talk about the gospel, we only see it through the lens of our personal relationship with him. And I'm not saying that that's not important. But we need to understand the larger scope of what God is doing. Matt Smethurst wrote this. He said, Satan doesn't whisper, believe in me. He whispers, believe in yourself. We need to start with the victory of God. That's where we need to begin. When we talk about the gospel, that's the chicken we need to be impersonating. The cosmic victory of God, that he has become ruler over all things. There's not a, a bit of evil that he hasn't triumphed over. After that, we can move to the inclusion of us in a covenantal community. And finally, into our personal implications. The problem is, when we start with the personal implications of the gospel, which are true, which is great news, which is beautiful, because we are so self-focused, we never move beyond it. It's not that it's not true, and it's not that it's not important. Jesus not only died to give the victory over all things, not only did he die to bring us into a covenantal community, but he died to save you and redeem you. And yes, that is incredible news. That in his mercy and in his forgiveness, he has saved you. I'm not saying anything against that. What I'm saying is that if we start there, we'll miss the bigger picture. And by missing the bigger picture, we miss the power that the church has in this world. See, we're living in what's called, uh, what you have probably heard referred to as the already and not yet. If you've heard that idea, it's this idea that, um, it sounds like I'm referring to like Stranger Things, the upside down, or something like that, Um, but it's it's this theological idea that there's a reality that what Christ did on the cross has accomplished all of the victory already, that we have been fully justified by what's happened, that he is fully victorious over all things. That It's not necessarily incomplete in what he has accomplished. However, there's this season of time, and and Peter refers to this season as a time of patience of God and love of God to bring more and more people into his community. Where all of the implications of what was accomplished on the cross won't be fully realized until Christ comes again. So we're living in this in-between. Between what's been accomplished through Christ and what will be fully realized through him coming again. And because of that, all the rulers and authorities and evil powers that are driving the things in this world, we still experience. We need to be rooted in that reality. The difference now is not that we don't experience those things, it's now that they have no power. They cannot and will not destroy us. Because Christ is victorious over all things. It talks about it, it says death has lost its sting. This is Paul writing this in 1 Corinthians. And it doesn't say death is gone. It just says it has no sting, it has no power. The, the fear of it, the, the hold that it has on us, it's no longer. It doesn't mean that we don't experience sickness anymore. It's just that ultimately that doesn't rule over us. It doesn't mean that we don't experience temptation. It doesn't mean that we don't experience the evils of the brokenness of this world. It just means that it no longer has the power. It no longer has the rule and authority over our hearts. So as we read this about the cosmic victory of God, as we read this that he has been raised and exalted, that he is now victorious over all things, that he has brought the church into this victory, we have to ask the question, how then should we respond? What would we see in our lives that show that we actually believe this to be true? The first is that we would be a people that prays. Do we really understand what God has done? This is beyond just the personal things of what he has done. God is being victorious over all evil. Think about those things in your life that just constantly feel like they're oppressing you. Think of those things out in this world that you're afraid of, that you get so discouraged by and despair over. God is victorious over that. He has accomplished the victory over that. And because of that, our life should be characterized by praising him, by responding to him. You see this in Paul as he's writing about this. You can't tell the difference between whether he's teaching about it or just praising God about it. Because he is so overwhelmed by the reality of what God has done and what God has accomplished in all of this. I know oftentimes the lack of passion that I have towards this is symptomatic of of my inability to truly see what God has done. that I don't have true sight, when this isn't something that I'm just excited about, that I'm just responding with, I I just can't believe this happened and I, I can't not praise God for it. It just shows that I don't really see what God has done. First is that we would be a people that praise. Second is that we'd be a people that pray. I think this is one of the biggest indicators of our functional materialism. And that we don't really get what Paul is saying. Prayer is recognizing the true reality of the world. It's recognizing how the world actually is. That we can create all of the legislation. We can do all of the screening. We can do all the medication. All of that stuff. And the true problem would not be addressed. Because that's not how this world really is. People that pray recognize the true reality of what this world is. That there are deeper evils that we can't overcome. That there are deeper rulers and authorities that are influencing and oppressing and bringing everybody into this that only God can overcome. That only God can have victory over. Prayer is recognizing the true reality of the world and asking God to do what only He can do. So not only would we be a people that praise, but we would be a people that pray that before we do all of these other things, we would seek God in prayer. Before we address uh, you know, the, the, the issues, whether it's at a government level, whether it's at a personal level, whether it's in our families, in our communities, before we do any of those things, we turn to God in prayer because we know that without Him accomplishing victory over the deeper evil, it doesn't matter what we do. Because that's not really the way the world works. So not only will we praise and pray, but the last is that we would proclaim. And yes, there are three Ps. They're alliterative. This is, I think, one of the most tragic realities of this world. And this is why the church is called to do this. It's because this world is being enslaved by powers that have already been defeated that is what is so sad about the reality of this world is that your friends your co-workers your neighbors all of those people that you see are being enslaved and oppressed by a power that's already been conquered that should have no real power in their lives And we get to proclaim that truth. We get to tell people the true reality of the world. That you no longer have to be defeated by depression. You no longer have to be defeated by the brokenness and sin. You no longer have to be overwhelmed by racism or or hatred or um, despair or bitterness or anything like that. You no longer have to be enslaved by that because God has actually given the victory over that. We get to proclaim that. We get to tell people that truth. To tell people and share that in their lives. And I think that the more we see this reality, the more we'll do that. We will praise God. We will pray to God. We will proclaim the good news of God because we have seen the victory of God in our own lives. and We've seen the victory of God as it plays out in the cosmic sphere. And that's what I'm hoping will grow in us. That's what I'm hoping will grow in my heart as I realize this more and more. As I begin to see the world as it truly is, that my heart will be one of gratitude and praise. That I will pray before I do anything else. That ultimately I will not be afraid to proclaim the true reality of the world to the people that need to hear it because they are being oppressed and they are being enslaved by powers that should have no power. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we are so thankful, God, for the the power and authority, Lord, that you have brought the church into. Lord, it is not because of us, Lord, it is not our own power, Lord, that, that conquers evil, Lord, that overwhelms and overcomes the rulers and authorities of this day, but Lord, it is because you have conquered it. Lord, I pray that you would use this church the way you intended it to be. Lord, that we would be a vessel of your mercy, Lord. That we would proclaim the power of God over all things, Lord, in the midst of all of this. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful. God, please give us eyes that truly see. Give us wisdom and discernment in the midst of all of this, Lord, so that we can ultimately see as you see. Lord, that we can ultimately praise you. We can turn to you and proclaim your good news. Lord, because you are the one who has accomplished victory over sin and death for all time. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.